We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies edtech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Transformative Principal Podcast, where we learn how to be an amazing educational leader. I am your host, Jethro Jones. Are you ready to be a transformative principal? I'm looking for about 10 people who are ready to do what it takes to lead with integrity, find balance, and take your school to the next level. If you're looking to improve your leadership in a measurable way, go to transformativeprincipal.org slash mastermind to see if you qualify to join a group of like-minded people who are ready to be the best principals in the country. All right, welcome to Transformative Principal. This is Jethro Jones, your host, and I've got Corey Doctorow here with me. Uh, Corey gave a keynote here at ASTE in Alaska this week, and we learned a ton from him. And he's the co-editor of Boing Boing and has been an inspiration to many people for a long time. So thank you very much, Corey, for being here. It's my pleasure. (laughs) Would you start by explaining your concept of failing well and explain that generally, and then we'll talk about how that applies to education? Sure. Well, there's two ways to think about the performance of a system or a solution. One is how well it achieves its stated goals. And then the other one is what happens when it fails. And failure is kind of a natural mode for for things in a complicated world. Stuff goes wrong a lot. Entropy sucks, and it's a fact of life. And I feel like we attend very closely to success because its metrics are visible and and immediate. But we tend to ignore what happens when failure occurs. And if we're talking about disaster mitigation, then failure is way more important than success. And so what are some of the failures that we need to be concerned about in education, making sure they fail well? Well, in terms of education and technology, I would start with something like the censorware mandate by the Communications Decency Act in schools that is meant to stop kids from looking at bad stuff on the internet. The failure, there are a couple of failure modes we can talk about. One is that kids might see bad things anyway, because you can't write a regular expression that's good enough to catch all the bad web pages. One is that kids will be stopped from seeing pages that are significant to their education. And, you know, about 10 years ago, Electronic Frontier Foundation did a survey where we took the top 100 pages for the top 100 concepts in the common curriculum. Mm -hmm. And we checked to see how much were blocked by common censorware 
apps and, and uh, used by boards of education. And we found that depending on the category, it was up to two-thirds. So that's a really significant failure. But then the last one is that you uh, end up uh, teaching kids not to learn how to protect their own privacy because by having all the sensorware in there, uh, you end up in a situation where anytime you teach a kid to take an affirmative step to protect their privacy, you're also teaching them to defeat the sensorware. And so we end up not encouraging the kind of media literacy that uh, we want our kids to have when they become adults. And so it has this, you know, this kind of multiple layers of failure, and you can mitigate them, right? So even if you stipulate that we do want kids to have a safe learning environment in which bad stuff is kept to a minimum or kept away altogether, if you don't attend to the failure modes, you can't remediate them. You can't say to yourself, what do we do when this happens? What is the, you know, we have um, all of the sensorware vendors, they have uh, plans for what to do if there's, if a teacher finds a web page that's inappropriately blocked, but that always assumes that, for example, the, that a student has just happened on a page that she should be looking at later, not, for example, that the teacher has made a page critical to the afternoon's learning session mm-hmm. and that it's been blocked over the lunch break when the filter updated and that getting it unblocked tomorrow does that teacher no good. So we can look at different failure modes and different remediation paths. Yeah, and that situation is a real example of something working before and then not working when the pressure's on. And for a teacher with 30 kids in a classroom, that's a difficult place to be, and you don't want that bad failure to happen. What should we be teaching our kids in schools as it relates to technology? Well, it's a a long list of things. I don't know that we can be comprehensive. I guess the thing, if if I could wave a wand and kind of direct the curriculum, the thing that I would try and stress right from the beginning is that um, whenever we talk about using technology in some way, particularly using networks, computers in some way, that we're kind of playing blind man and the elephant. That what we're, what we're talking about here is this one facet of this much bigger system that's always interrelated. This has become a really critical piece in policy circles because we end up treating the Internet like it's a glorified video-on-demand service or a tool for recruiting jihadi soldiers or the world's greatest pornography distribution system. And while it does all of those things, the reason it does it is because it's the nervous system of the 21st century and it wires together everything we do. And everything we do today involves the Internet and everything we do tomorrow will require it. And so by saying, by all means, let's learn in ICT how to change the font of some text in Word or how to uh, make Scratch do some sort of animation or how to use different search engines or what a cookie is. Let's also at every time stress that these are all interconnected things, that we are tugging on threads that are all woven together in a way that's almost without precedent in human history. We don't have a lot of technologies that are like this. It's one of the reasons that it's so powerful, is that when we make an improvement in computers, say because someone's made an investment in making them smaller to go into heart monitors, we make an improvement in the computers that go into our phones too. And it's also why missteps in policy and in technology education are so grave, because when we make a mistake, that mistake ripples out everywhere else. When, as in the UK, where I've just uh, been living for the last decade, when we decide that the most important thing about the internet is whether or not jihadis are using it to try and exhort one another to commit acts of terror, we miss out on this, the collateral damage to all the other things we do with the internet, which is effectively everything. Yeah, and that really affects our kids and how they're going to interact with it as time goes on. And that's something that we need to be concerned about. 
Can you talk a little bit about re-identification and what that means to our students who are using technology? So in computer science, we have a really different understanding of large sets of sensitive data as compared to policy circles and the general public. So in the general public and policy circles, there's this idea that you can remove identifiers from a big data set. You could take, for example, everyone who'd ever called a uh, STI clinic and you could just remove the identifiers like anytime they mentioned their name and the phone number that they called from and you would have now an anonymous data set that you could do research on. Mm-hmm. Maybe that would be marketing, maybe it would be social science, maybe it would be public health research. It might have a good purpose or a bad purpose, but it all starts from the idea that now we have removed the identifiers from the data. We have a new kind of data. In computer science and practice, what we find is that it's, it's uh, as far as we can tell, impossible to effectively anonymize or de-identify a large data set that uh, removing all the obvious identifiers, all that does is reduce the percentage that you can re-identify. Uh, in practice, depending on the kind of uh, data that's left in, re-identification turns out to be pretty trivial. The, one of the examples cited in the literature often was um, someone, somehow some researchers in Belgium got a copy of the leaked de-identified data from Belgium's largest uh, cellular phone company. And it didn't have phone numbers in it, but it had unique identifiers for each customer and where they were and I think where they were and what what numbers they called maybe. Mm -hmm. And they were able like in one day to re-identify more than half of the data set to, to figure out who those people were, where they lived and just all sorts of information. And this has real implications for students, because obviously um, students generate a lot of data in the course of their uh, education, and that data is treated by school boards, depending on the board and the state, as though it were uh, de-identifiable, mm-hmm. and it's potentially very compromising. In California, you know, there's this debate right now because there's an ongoing court case where the state is being sued by parents who believe that the state systematically discriminated against students who had special educational needs and denied them access to special ed that they were entitled to under the statute. And in order to prove their point, they've asked the court to turn over all of the student records from all California students after 2008. And this data is coming totally identified, right? It has names, it has addresses, it has social security numbers, disciplinary records, mental health records, health records, and so on. And the plaintiffs in this have, I think, correctly said, well, this is the other side trying to discredit us. We didn't ask for all of this information. We just wanted these specific pieces of information so we could we could uh, do some research and uh, infuse some data into this court case. But the reality is that even if they had only gotten the identifiers they were seeking, that wouldn't be anonymous data. That would be extremely re-identifiable data. And it's a really subtle and hard problem. You know, it would be like in terms of our uh, of creating evidence-based policy, the ability to effectively de-identify data sets would be amazing. But merely wanting something is not enough to make it true. And so it's a, it's a subtle and hard point, but one that students are going to have to ad- address and engage with through the rest of their lives. Yeah, and that becomes more real when you kids think they're using anonymous uh, methods to chat with each other and share information. What kinds of things should we be teaching them to prepare them for that future? Well, I mean, uh, you mentioned anonymous communications, and, and Yik Yak is a really interesting example because a lot of the problems with Yik Yak is the sense of impunity. Don't get me wrong. I think that people who understand that they can be identified later still sometimes operate with a sense right. of impunity <laughs> and are sometimes mean. There's this kind of, the, I forget, the, the greater internet theory of... 
rules or something, you can bleep that out if you need to, okay. which is that, uh, you know, uh, anonymity plus uh, distance equals jerky behavior, something like that. I forget what the actual formulation is. And that that's true. There are some people for whom the anonymity plus the distance allows them to behave in really horrible ways. There are also lots of people who don't need either of those things to behave in horrible ways. But if you want to get your students to think critically about Yik Yak and what they do there, rather than waving your finger at them and trying to give them a moral lesson about good behavior, you might give them a lesson about re-identification, right? And the likelihood that with every crummy thing they say about their peers on Yik Yak, the likelihood that they will be re-identified goes up and up and up. And that if they're depending on anonymity as a front, as a shield to allow them to get away with things that they know they shouldn't be saying, rather than convincing them they should be more uh, diligent about not doing things they know they shouldn't be doing, you could just better inform them of the risks. Yeah. And then show them what could happen when they are re-identified. And I saw on, I think it was on Boing Boing, that a teacher was recently disciplined for grooming a child on the Whisper app where um, that's supposed to be anonymous and you're not supposed to know who does that, but we know who that teacher is because it can be re-identified. And that's that's just something that our kids, I don't think, have any idea of right now. And they think anonymous really means anonymous. As an administrator, is there a need for us to be critical of the software and systems that we are using in our schools? And what's your advice for exercising that uh, criticism without getting fired? <laughs> sure. Well, absolutely. It, you know, it, it's obvious that there's such a thing as bad software and such a thing as good software and that bad software can be bad in lots of ways and those and as we become more reliant on technology that badness can become more intense we're getting back into what makes things work versus what makes them fail there are lots of different ways to make software that works but what's more interesting and more important in some ways is what happens when it's not working because no matter how good it is you'll eventually come up against its limits so proprietary versus open has been a debate in ed tech as well as other fields of technology for a long time and the idea is that um, firms might invest more in their software tools if they know that nobody can copy the things that they make and so they make proprietary technology and they keep the source code a secret uh, and you can understand why commercially they might want to do that but there's never been a field of endeavor in which not being subject to scrutiny by people who don't like you has improved your practice, right? We, we have adversarial peer review for a reason. And, you know, you wouldn't allow engineers to build you a school where they didn't disclose the math that they used to calculate their load stresses. If your school is no good if the walls fall down, it's equally no good if the computers stop working. And uh, having procurement processes in which you source technology whose internals aren't exposed to you, whose internals can't be independently audited, and whose internals can't be modified by third parties if you don't like your vendor, mm -hmm. then you are locking yourself into a bunch of bad decisions that may work well but are going to fail very gracelessly, going to fail very, very dramatically. So that's um, an important critique to keep in mind, and favoring open over proprietary systems is a really good uh, basis for for moving forward in the field. You know, it's funny, one of the things that's happened in other areas of technology is that the customers for traditional proprietary products have found that although the money that each individual uh, company spends is not enough to redevelop the product in an open way, that 
if maybe 10% of the customers were to get together and fund an open alternative, that that would be enough to give everybody the alternative that they needed and keep it running. And th there are lots of examples of this. There's Drupal, which is used by, you know, The Onion and also The White House for their internal publishing. And, you know, rather than paying a company for a software license, they pay developers for software features when the software isn't performing the way that they want it. And as soon as one of them pays for it, everybody benefits from it. So this is a really interesting model for, for development and you know it hasn't killed CMSs but it's made the, the commercial CMS vendors be uh, even better and it's uh, it's kind of changed who gets access to a CMS because now there's lots of people with WordPress systems or Drupal systems who um, never would have had access to it under under the old system who get access to it now and that's a really amazing thing there was um, a huge expensive project in the UK to fund electronic health records that collapsed after spending billions of pounds without a single thing to show for it. It was really a shocking scandal. And Moorfields Eye Hospital, right near my old place in London, it's the best eye hospital in the UK and one of the best in Europe. And they needed glaucoma tracking software and they'd been kind of kind of hobbling along with whatever they had lying around waiting for these electronic health records. And when it collapsed, they were like, forget it. So they paid one programmer to develop a kind of minimum viable product they called Open Eyes, uh, E-Y-E-S. It's based, it's a LAMP stack, Linux, Apache, MySQL, and, and Python or Perl, I forget which. And so many other eye hospitals ditched their proprietary software in favor of that and added more development resources to it that it's now considered the gold standard for tracking glaucoma, which is one of the most important things that you do in, in eye health. And, um, you know, it's not that company, it's not that eye hospitals don't have to pay for it, but they pay for the maintenance and updating that they personally need and they have this kind of collegial relationship with everyone else. It's a very exciting idea and one of the things that I keep striking me as a parent of an elementary school student is that love or hate the common curriculum. It certainly has opened up this weird, interesting possible future where you could get collaborative development of curricular materials by educators that could be updated and kept alive by educators. And, you know, it's not that, like, Pearson doesn't deserve to have a living and it's not that Houghton Mifflin doesn't deserve to have a living. It's just that the priority for schools shouldn't be ensuring returns to Pearson's shareholders, should be ensuring the best quality <clears throat> materials at the lowest price because it's zero-sum. Dollars you spend on educational materials are dollars you don't spend on other educational materials. And so, you know, if right now ever the average school is paying one full-time salary's worth of uh, outgo for educational materials, what if they paid that into um, development of educational materials that all the other schools benefited from? Imagine how great those materials would be. So we recently experienced something like this at our school. We needed a solution to do a student choice time period during the school day, and all of the solutions that we had and could find were not going to do it. And so we hired a developer to create a solution for us. We also made it open source, and now any other school, we presented on it here at this conference yesterday, and any other school now can use that and do the same thing that we're doing, which is a very powerful RTI framework that responds to intervention that the whole nation has adopted and really makes it easy to allow students to have choice. What it takes is someone to go out and make that first connection with a developer and get that to happen. And I think if developers could come to educators and to a conference like this that they wouldn't typically come to and say, what can we build for you? I think they would have people lining up 
to do it because it's such a powerful thing, but it takes someone to start out and do that. Well, so what you're describing is a threshold collective action problem, right? And it's, you know, it's that you need a critical mass of schools to free up the budget or request something. And no one school can afford it, but maybe five schools can. But if four schools kick in and the fifth one bails out, then you don't, uh, then nothing happens. You've all wasted your money, mm-hmm. right? These are like common problems. Yeah. And we actually, the last 10 years in technology or five years in technology have been all about solving collective action problems with Kickstarter. Right. right? Kicks, that's the whole nature of Kickstarter. And you can imagine lots of different ways that that model could be developed. There's a movie, a really old classic movie about collective action problems. It's um, uh, The Seven Samurai, which got remade as, as The Magnificent Seven. Right? Uh, every year we pay the bandits. And for each individual one of us, paying the bandits is the cheapest way to avoid getting killed. But one year we all get together and we say, if you promise not to pay the bandits, I'll promise not to pay the bandits. We're going to take all the money we would have used to pay the bandits and we're going to pay the good guys to come and kill the bandits. Right? And that Magnificent Seven business model is something that I think would be an amazing piece of technology to build, I think you could probably backform it into Indiegogo or Kickstarter or, or GoFundMe or one of the other platforms where you just say, like, once a hundred of my colleagues, a hundred schools, a hundred CTOs, a hundred CIOs have agreed to uh, take their procurement budget for something yeah. this year, uh, and instead of giving it to a big ed tech provider, they're going to give it to independent developers. I will too. And then the indie developers can bid on the jobs, right? They can right. see what jobs are coming up. They can see, look at this juicy, amazing contract, right? I really think that there's a lot to it. I actually uh, worked with a third party in the UK to develop a version of this for electioneering, where third party candidates, when they knock on your door, instead of saying, I'd like you to waste your vote on me, they say, I'd like you to register that if enough of your neighbors uh, to make me a going concern agree that they would also vote for me, then you will vote for me too. And then on election day, we'll let you know how many people, how many of your neighbors have done it and what we estimate the chances are of me winning. And you can decide whether or not to follow up on your promise. It's a really exciting idea, these the, like tools to solve collective action threshold problems. Yeah, that sounds very exciting. I know that it's really helped us at our school taking a leap in doing this and has really been beneficial. I hope that that story will help others also. So my last question to everybody on my podcast is what's one thing that a principal listening to this can do today to become a transformative principal? Really easy question. Wow. <laughs> well, get bitten by a radioactive spider. Clearly <laughs> that's that, that worked for Peter Parker. What's one thing that a principal can do to become a transformative principal? Let me think about it for a second, because it's a good, hard, chewy question. Hmm. So this isn't a technology answer, except that it may be about, it may be that the thing that your students are passionate about is technology. But in an era of high-stakes testing and standardized curriculum, it can be really hard to get out of a student's way, because you and the students have divided loyalties, right? You, you have different victory conditions. Your victory condition is for the student to perform well on a, on a test at a specific time to guarantee your budget. And the student's victory condition is to have a moment in which she's ready to learn and to have the materials there to hand. And it can be really hard to consistently prioritize what the students need over what the uh, school needs. Um, and obviously, if there's no school you can't help the, the students anymore. 
but you know, at Disney, uh, I used to work for Imagineering off and on, and uh, you know, one of the things I've spent a lot of time looking at is their corporate culture. And at their best, they've had a corporate culture where employees were uh, empowered to cost the company money if it would make the experience better for people. So, like that would be down to things like if somebody got soaked and didn't have a change of clothes, you might give their five-year-old a, a big baggy T-shirt, even though that comes out of the company's bottom line. That, in the long run, has been very good for the firm. In the same way, you know, if the students don't feel good about their education, there's also no future for the school. Right. I had an amazing experience in grade two, where I walked into uh, my classroom. Uh, it was a couple of minutes early. There was a bookcase, as there is in the best classrooms, and I found a copy of Alice in Wonderland. I'd never read a chapter book to myself, and I just sat down and started reading it. And when the bell rang, the teacher looked over and saw that I was reading a book for the first time, and she did nothing. Mm-hmm. Right, like she had the bravery to do nothing, and she let me sit there all day and all the next day, and I read. A chapter book from one end to the other in one two sittings, one go, all by myself out of my own desire, and all of the groundwork that she and my other teachers had laid paid off in that moment because right. uh, you know all that stuff they trained me to do came to the fore. I'm married to a woman named Alice now, <laughs> right? Like like getting out of my way and letting me read Alice in Wonderland was a hugely transformative thing in my educational career. And I, my greatest fear as a parent of an elementary school student is that those moments are increasingly hard for teachers and administrators to justify. And as administrators, you have the power in it to move the liability for making that decision from your teachers to yourself and to give them leave and say, I have your back. If you see a student as pedagogists, as teachers, if you see a student who has that learning moment happening, I give you permission and I will back you if you just get out of their way. And uh, it's not a technology story, but I really hope that there are teachers and administrators who can do it. Yeah, And I know that most of the people listening to this are that way and that's why they're listening to things like this is to have the courage and strength to do those things and make sure they are out of the kids way how can people connect with you and learn more from you and about you i'm pretty easy to find i'm the first cory in google uh i edit this website boing 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 dot net just like it sounds i work with electronic frontier foundation eff.org and my own website's at craphound.com okay and do you want to talk about the eff's student thing that you mentioned today so Electronic Frontier Foundation is a 25-year-old 501c3 nonprofit that works for digital rights, privacy, free speech, and other traditional rights from the real world as we transition into the digital world. And uh, we have a lot of different activities that we do, but one that we're just starting up is a national network of campus clubs at all levels of uh, education where we have a coordinator. Uh, his name is Shahid, and he's at shahid at eff.org, S-H-A-H-I-D at eff.org, who will work with student clubs to help them find activities that make sense and to work together to become better digital citizens, more digitally literate and more active in keeping the internet free and open. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Corey. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks. That was a really great interview with Corey Doctorow. I learned so much from him, and I'm excited you were able to share in that learning with me. Please share this with your friends. That would be great. Also, if you would like to learn about the things that I've learned as a principal doing these interviews, uh, please go to transformativeprincipal.org and sign up for the newsletter. 
so that you can get the top five things that I've learned from doing all these interviews. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. Transformative Principal is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Visit edupodcastnetwork.com to hear more great podcasts that will help you improve your teaching and leading. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com slash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE.